Let's pray. Believe that. Believe that truth that you are God and God alone. There is none beside you, none before you. You are the God who has always been, is, and will always be. Ancient of days, Alpha and Omega. You are the true God, and you're the God of truth. That is great to know. You're the God of truth who never changes, immutable. One of your characteristics, eternally unchanging. So, God, what that does for me is the God that I know about, the God that I read about, the God in Scripture who is quick to forgive and slow to anger, the God who relentlessly pursued us unto salvation, the God who gave the greatest price to redeem, how will he not also along with his son graciously give us all things? Thank you for the truth of that verse. So right here we are in prayer. We're coming because we're needy. We're coming because... We live in a world that presses against us, that breaks, at times, breaks our hearts, that leaves holes in our emotions, and persecutes and tries to bring us to despair and But you are God. You're the unchanging God. You're the God of love and the God of grace who demonstrated your love for us and your power to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So we bring you our request. We bring you our needs. You're the God of all wisdom and understanding so you know what every need is. I know that there are God, there are some here, there are many here that need a miracle. They are in desperate need of a miracle. That's your business, though. And so, Lord, we, we respond to your invitation to come and to bring our request to you. God, would you just hear our hearts in this moment of silence right here as we just talk to you in our hearts about what we need. And Lord, we know that you have the end planned from the beginning and you know how to accomplish everything you want to accomplish and that you have the power to get it done.
so we are trusting you with those requests. Trusting that you're going to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. Now, Lord, as we get ready to open up your word, oh, thank you for your word. Oh, thank you. Thank you for giving us the letter to the church at Rome. I am regularly astounded as I study and watch that truth unfold. Thank you. For me, Lord, this morning, I ask now that you keep Brad out of the way. Empty me of self. Fill me with your spirit. Broken. Very imperfect. But through my brokenness, would your spirit just flow and minister to the people that you love right here. Pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted. Pray that truth would be accurately disseminated and that your word to each heart, because I know you are here to speak to each heart, that your word to each heart would be personally embraced and applied, mine included. Thank you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible in your hand, please turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're going to continue our study of the inspired letter that God had Paul write to us. Let me just begin this by giving you what I believe is an important overview that leads to a equips you to have a better understanding of specifically the two chapters that we're about to jump into starting here today. There are many that outline Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and they divide it into this division. Chapters 1 through 4 focused on justification, or chapters 1 through 5 focused on justification, and then in chapter 6, a change is made in their outline. They say that his theme of justification by faith alone is done, and he begins to then write about sanctification, the life, the ongoing growth of the believer. Now, I think that there are some truths in chapter 6 and chapter 7 that help with sanctification, but it is very deep in my heart, clear in my mind, that chapter 5 or chapter 6 is not the beginning of a new theme. It is the same theme that he was talking about in chapter 5. And so if that is true, and I'm gonna sh- I think I can show you that here in a moment, but if that is true, it's important for us 
to understand if this is a continuation to remember the context that led up to this. Because context enables us to properly interpret the text. So what is the context? Chapters 1 through 4, Paul was talking about justification by faith alone or through faith alone. Then in chapter 5, still on that theme, what Paul does is he begins to unlock the ramifications of that justification by faith. He begins chapter 5 with this, Therefore, since we have now been justified by faith, now I'm going to give you some truths. He begins by saying, here's one, we have peace with God. Here's another, we have access through this faith into the grace of God. And what do we do in that grace of God? He says a little further down, we stand in that grace. It's where we remain right there in that manifold abundant grace. And down toward the end of the chapter, he brings us to a great conclusion. And he says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So chapter 5, and I said this to you over and over again as we went through it. Chapter 5 is about the security of the believer. That if we really understand what we have in Jesus Christ through His death and resurrection, if we really understand what justification is, Paul says in chapter 5, then we're going to understand that we have an incredible thing, a secure thing. And he outlines those. Now with that in mind, with that theme of chapter 5 in mind, Let's see if chapter 6 begins a new topic or simply continues what, with the subject he has been delineating. Let me read verse 1 and 2. We're going to try to cover both of those today. It'll be a record for me, right? He opens by saying this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So look at that opening statement first. What shall we say then? What is Paul doing? He is telling us that he's going to tell us something about what he just told us, right? What shall we say then? There is an indication that he is continuing what he has just talked about. It is glaringly apparent that he is flowing chapter 6 directly out of what he has just completed in chapter 5. So it's not a new subject. And what he does then is he identifies a common objection to his teaching of justification through faith alone. There was a very clear and at times pervasive, not only in Paul's day, but in the early centuries of the church, this heresy that tried to spring up, folks, there's still remnants of it today. The big theological term is antinomianism. And it is a doctrine, a false doctrine that draws a conclusion incorrectly from this incredible thing 
called justification through faith alone. And here is the objection, and Paul identifies it here in verse 1 because he wants to settle it in the minds of the objectors. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, he talked about at the end of chapter 5 that where sin increases, grace does what? Oh, yes, some of you got it. Let's try that again. Where sin increases, grace superabounds. Well, then, if that's the case, let's party. Man, let's open the door for sin, I mean, for grace to superabound. I mean, I'm doing God's glory a favor here. Antinomianism. That's antinomianism. That's this heresy that was creeping into the church. You see, the common objection, the most common objection to the doctrine of justification by faith, such a powerful justification that the believer is secure in that, the common objection to that doctrine is this, that it means a Christian can do as he or she pleases as long as they have faith, and it makes no difference. And folks, Paul, by his reaction, makes a very clear statement about what he thinks about that lie. And it's, I believe, how we should respond to it. I think we should adamantly and passionately refute that lie in our day like Paul did in his day. He said, first of all, just in a reactionary statement, I have it in the ESV here, by no means. I mean, should we continue to sin so that it leaves the door wide open for grace to superabound? By no means. Now that loses its power in the English language. What Paul said, if we were to try to put it literally, we could translate it like this. Such a thought is absolutely unthinkable. That it is something that should not even be suggested, should not even enter your mind. It is so outrageous, unthinkable, by no means. God forbid that you would even think such a thought. That is his initial reaction. Strong expression. But then, here's what Paul does, is he makes a statement in verse 2, and here's where we're going to park this morning. He makes a statement in verse 2 that answers the objection. And it is a concise statement, just a short sentence, and yet it is a complete statement. Let me just whet your appetite by telling you what some of the great scholars of history, I mean giants of the faith, make about this statement in the second half of verse 2. 
They say that for the Christian, there is no greater truth in all of the Bible than this statement in verse 2. The statement is this. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Very short, but very complete. We're going to unpack that in a minute, but let me show you what Paul does just for emphasis. The rest of chapters, the first half of chapter 6, he repeats that statement over and over and over again in one way or another to make sure that the point is driven home. Verse 3, all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death that we were buried, therefore, into death, verse 4. Verse 5, we have been united with Him in a death like His. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with Him. Verse 8, now we have died with Christ. Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin. I mean, that is some of the most repetitive in a condensed summary statement of anywhere in Scripture where Paul is hammering the same truth over and over and over again. Why would he do that? Well, the obvious initial answer to that is he's wanting to make sure we get our hands on this truth, make sure that we understand it for what it means because it must be a very, very influential truth. But that's not all. That's only the first half of chapter 6. What he does in the second half of chapter 6 is he starts all over again with the same line of reasoning. Let me just show that to you. It is profound. Verse 1, he states the objection. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? As the second section of chapter 6 begins, he does the same thing in verse 15. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Verse 2, by no means. Verse 15, by no means. And then in verse 2, he states the answer to the objection. In verse 16, he states the answer to the second objection. Then in the rest of the first half of chapter 6, he expounds upon the truth. In the rest of the second half of verse chapter 6, he expounds upon the truth. And then he concludes, first half of chapter 6, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What is he saying? Grace wins. The last verse of chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace wins. He makes Two runs at the same idea, stating it in two different ways. The first half of chapter 6, he uses the illustration of death. The second half of chapter 6, he uses the illustration of slavery. Two analogies to paint the picture of one truth. You could, matter of fact, you could put over chapter 6, the main heading, the Christian's relationship to sin. Because what this chapter does is it talks about what the Christian's relationship to sin is. So now, 
Let's see if we can try to unpack the truth of this statement. That how can we who died to sin still live in it? What does that mean? This verse, when you understand it, will be the master key that will help unlock all of the truth of chapter 6. If you don't understand it or embrace it, you will be looking for the wrong things. You'll be drawing the wrong interpretations that will lead you to the wrong applications of life. Two words that are very critical here. The word we and the word died. Let me just show you those one at a time. First of all, Paul says, how can we? How can we? In the English, maybe I'll explain that a different way. What he is referring to here in the, losing my train of thought here. What we do in English language is that we have uh, two words in a sentence related to a verb, or at least two words. We have the action and then what related to the action. The identification of who's doing the action or what is doing the action, right? Like the subject of the verb. In the Greek, you don't need two words. In the Greek, focus in on that word died. In the Greek, that word, that verb has an ending on, tagged onto it. It has some letters tagged onto the end. And those letters indicate precisely the subject of the verb. It indicates, identifies who or what is doing the action of that verb. That's not the way English is structured, but Greek is very precise. Like you could take the words in a Greek sentence and mix them up and then understanding the declension, the ending of those nouns and those verbs, you could say, okay, there's the subject, there's the direct object, there's the verb. You could get it precisely correct even if it was put in a bowl and stirred up. You can't do that in English. One of the reasons I believe that God communicated His Word in the Greek language because of its precision. So the question here is this. What does that verb mean, died? What tense is the verb? Is this talking about a past action, a present action, or a future action? Well, it's pretty obvious. If you look at it, what would you say out of those three? Died. Is that past, present, or future? I think it's pretty clear in English here that it is a past action. But there's more to question here. You have to dig a little deeper to make sure that you have clarity on the tense of the verb. It is given in the errorist tense. Here's what that means. 
It refers to, I'm just going to give you three bullet points here. It refers to, number one, an action in a person's life, something that took place in the past in a moment of time. Number two, that that's something that was completely was not just something done in that moment of time in the past. It was something completed in that moment of time in the past. And not only that, it is something that will never be repeated again in that life period. So it is past tense done in a moment of time. It is something that was fully completed when it was done in that moment of time. And number three, it is something that never will be completed or done again in that life. That's the tense of the verb. Undeniable. Scholars agree on that tense of the verb. So Paul says here, about Christians that we died to sin. Moment in time, that moment was different for you than for me if you're saved, but it was a moment in time when you put your faith in Christ. And that was a fully completed death to sin in that moment, and it's something that will never happen again. That's clearly what he is saying here. So let me even make that more clear by showing you what he's not saying. He's not saying that we who will die to sin, I mean, that's clearly true, right? It's not we who will die, it's we who died. Secondly, it's not we who are dying. Do you get that implication? I mean, that's kind of what we think about when we think about the growth of the Christian life, that what we're doing, right, is we are dying more and more to sin and that we are growing more and more into Christ-likeness. But Paul did not say that it is we who are dying. It is we who died. We who died, done, completed, past tense, never repeated. And then thirdly, Paul did not say, this is a harder difference to see, but he does not say that it is we who are dead to sin. That's not the tense of the verb. Because the focus of we who are dead to sin, the focus of that statement is on the, the reality or the position of the person not the act of the dying. So we who are dead to sin is different than we who died to sin. So here's the, here's the truth. It's not a process. It's a moment. It's not repetitive. It's singular. It's not partial. It's finished. It's not a condition. It's an action. That's the tense of the verb for died. Now, jump back to the word we. 
Paul uses an emphatic word here. It could be translated like this. If you understood it in the Greek, it would be translated like this. We, how shall we who died to sin live in it? I mean, even we. The word here in the Greek, the emphasis is emphatic in the Greek. It is so strong in the Greek. Paul is jump springboarding here off of his context in chapter 5. You see, at the last half of chapter 5, what was Paul telling us? He was saying, look, you were in Adam. You are in Christ. You were lost in sin. Matter of fact, you were condemned in Adam without doing anything yourself. Adam's sin condemned you and the entire human race. That is the clear teaching of Romans 5, 12 to 21. That we entered into this world already under the dominion and reign of sin. That Adam's sin in the garden ushered in the dominion of sin's reign over humanity. And sin's reign has reigned in death since that time. And when we are born, we're born under that dominion. We're born as a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. We're born locked up in the castle of sin. We have absolutely no hope of making our way out of that castle. We were given a sinful nature through Adam. And because of that, we act like we are. We sin. But then Paul says, he just uses that as a teaching point to say in chapter 5, but here's the truth. If you have received Christ's justification, you're not under Adam anymore. You're under a new head. You're under the Lord Jesus Christ. You are taken out of the kingdom of darkness. He rides in on his white horse and he rescues you and brings you into a brand new kingdom. He puts you as a citizen of a brand new country. He completely removes you from the power and the dominion of sin in the kingdom of darkness. He gives you a brand new existence, a brand new reality. And so then he says in verse 2, How could we, even we, to whom that has taken place, now living under a new king, the king of grace, under a new dominion, the dominion of grace, how could we over here, existing in the kingdom of light, under this benevolent great king, how could we possibly continue to live in sin? See, the context does so much to interpret and expose the meaning of the text and the truth for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, if you truly realize who you are and what your position is, this question that was raised in verse 1, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? That question just flies right out the door. It is unthinkable if you really understand who you are. So taking those two ideas, 
the emphatic nature of the word we and the tense of the verb for died. Putting those two together, how then can we interpret the phrase, we died to sin, how can we still live in it? Do you know how some people interpret it? Matter of fact, fairly popular views of interpretation here because there are several different views. The first one, to me, the most glaringly incorrect view is that what Paul means when he says that we died to sin, he means that sin no longer has any influence over us. We, in that moment, lose all of our appetite to sin. That it doesn't even have any pull on us anymore. Can I just ask you, has anybody experienced that? This preacher has not. If that's the truth, then I have missed the boat. I mean, my experience alone refutes that. But Paul goes on in the chapter, in chapter 6, by some very direct statements to refute it himself. He says, verse 12, let us not sin there, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Why would he say that if it no longer has any pull? Or verse 13, do not present your members as sin to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. That'd be pretty redundant. If you're not even interested, why would he be admonishing you so strongly to stay away from it? You see, it is not true that when we are justified, when we are saved, that sin loses its pull on our heart. Here's another way that that is interpreted. That I should die to sin, that I should die to sin. That's a misunderstanding of the tense of the verb. That statement right there is saying, man, if you think about the sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid for you, I mean, if you really get your mind around that, it should cause you to run away from sin knowing what it cost him. Folks, I agree with that statement. The problem is it's not what Paul is saying here. Here's another way that it's interpreted. Not I should die, I am dying to sin. I am dying to sin. Here's that thought. That thought says this, and this is the one that can look so right. It, this, the thought of when I became a Christian, at that moment, my death towards sin began. And as I live my Christian life, more and more, I am dying to sin. I am putting it off more and more. I am I am killing it in me. But the problem is, I mean, I like the idea we should be living less and less in sin as we grow more and more in holiness. That's true, but that is not what Paul is saying here. That is not the text that we're looking at here. Here's the fourth one. And this one is truth, it's just incomplete that I died to the guilt of sin. 
that what it means when I died to sin, it means that I died to sin's guilt. That is absolutely true. That at the moment you were justified, we've talked extensively about what that word means. It means God makes a declaration over your life. He declares you to be in a right relationship with His law. That based upon what His Son has done, your guilt is gone. Your condemnation is gone. The, the Father of heaven makes a declaration. I declare this person to be righteous because they put their faith in my Son. So that is true in a sense that we die to sin's guilt. But Paul is not only saying that here in verse 2. That's true, but it's incomplete. You see, we can get at the meaning if we remember the context, if we keep it connected to chapter 5. Because in chapter 5, having given this great comparative illustration, Adam and Christ, Adam and Christ, you were in Adam, you're now in Christ, you had nothing to do with being in Adam, it was something that he did that condemned you, and in Christ, it's nothing that you do, it's everything that he does. Adam's sin had unbelievable consequences over your life, over all of the human race. When you accept Christ, it has comprehensive consequences over your life. And then he comes to the end of chapter 5 and he says this. That as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign in life. That what the truth really is and its culminating idea is that the grace of God is going to superabound in your life if you're a justified believer. The Grace of God is going to win the day. Now take that to chapter 6, verse 2, and this paramount statement that Paul makes here. How can we who died to sin still live in it any longer? What is this death to sin? It is this. We have died to the dominion of sin over our life. The power of sin that held us in its way, the grip that could not be ripped from us by us, that power has been shattered by the Lord Jesus Christ that when you accepted Him, you had a death to that dominion. It was ended for you, completely forever ended for you. That dominion was fully removed. That's what it means when he says that we died to sin. We have died to the reign of sin because we have a new king. Jesus Christ and the new king is not going to let the old king that he has fully and completely defeated control our lives, have dominion over us, have weapons that can defeat us. He will not do that. If he did, grace wouldn't superabound. Sin would. But grace superabounds. Do you see the truth here? Paul is trying to get us here to understand who we are and what 
we have in Christ. And what he's going to do through the rest of the chapter over and over again in order to drive that home, he is going to show us what happened when we accepted Christ, what happened to us in relationship to sin, where we were placed positionally when that happened. I mean, I could fire off several things that the Scripture says. It says that in Christ we're seated with God in the heavenly realms. Is that a pretty safe place? Has anybody ever stormed the throne and ransacked heaven? No, somebody tried it once. wasn't very effective. It says that we are joint heirs with Christ. That in fact, we will reign with Christ. That we are perfectly righteous in the heavenly realms. Here's the struggle, and I, I know what the struggle is. I understand what the objection is in your mind because in my humanness, it's the same objection in my mind. And it is this. If that is true, then what's the problem? I mean, if what you're saying is really true, why do I not experience that in my day-to-day -day life? Let me just make that even a little stronger. You see, what Paul teaches here is not only does the dominion of sin end, a new dominion begins. Not only is one king dethroned, but a new king of grace and power takes the throne. And he says when that happens, how can we still live in sin? That word live, it's important for you to understand the meaning of that word. That does not mean that a follower of Christ never commits a sin. That word is a direct reference to an ongoing, continual, perpetual activity. It is describing the life of a person who is set toward sin, who sins and continually pursues that course, is not pricked or guilty, but is running after their pursuits of the sinful nature, that they are living in that. It's defining their life. So Paul is not trying to say here that a Christian, a true Christian is sinless. He's talking about a whole direction of life in that word. But not only has sin lost its power, he comes to the concluding statement in verse 14 of this section and look at it again. For sin will have no dominion over you. For sin will have no dominion over you. So folks, listen. The message here is far more than we should not sin. I mean, if you understand the tense of the verb and the emphatic use of we then you understand that the message here is far more than we should not sin. Secondly, the message here is far more than we should gradually sin less and less. 
We should gradually sin less and less, but that's not this message. The message here is far more than one day we will finally die to sin. No, that's happened. If you're a believer, that has happened. So the question then, let me state it three ways. If sin has lost its power, why is my battle with sin sometimes so intense? If I am dead to sin, why do I occasionally or continually fall into the pit of sin? Or if sin's dominion over me has ended, why am I so often defeated day to day? Those are valid questions. Questions that seem to fly in the face of the truth that Paul is proclaiming here. But you need to understand that there is a difference between what is true positionally about you and what takes place in the day-to-day practice. There is a difference between who you are in the heavenly realms and how you flesh out your life in the physical realms. There's a difference there. And what Paul is doing here in chapter 6 I can just try to wrap this up, it is this. He wants to narrow the gap between who you are positionally, perfectly righteous, seated at the right hand of God, who you are positionally in Christ. He wants to narrow that gap between that and how you practice your day-to-day life. And so how does he go at doing that? Well, certainly he says, it's ridiculous that you would keep on sinning. I mean, that's a, that's a ridiculous statement to even make, that you would sin more so that there can be more grace. So how does he proactively attack it? He does this. He says, I'm going to tell you about who you are about what you have. I'm going to tell you the reality about yourself spiritually. And if you will understand that truth, it will unlock a new lifestyle for you. I mean, if you really understand it, if you really embrace it, then you're going to act upon it. And when you do, when you take those steps of faith, believing what God has said, then it's going to release the power of God in your life. Let me give you a few examples biblically. God came to the man, a man by the name of Joshua, and he said, Joshua, I know you got Jericho here, this unbelievably fortified city with walls that two or three chariots abreast could race around on the top of, right? But here's what I want you to do. Here's the battle plan. I want you to march around that city for seven days with all of your traveling buddies. And then at the end, I want you to blow your trumpets and shout really loud. Because what I'm doing, Joshua, is I'm going to give you the city. I mean, in my mind, it's a done deal. And when you do that, the walls are going to fall. Okay, Joshua's faced with a situation here. Is he going to believe what he sees the fortified walls, the impenetrable fortress, 
their helplessness against it? Or is he going to believe what he has heard from God? And so he marshals the troops and they do their marching. And then on the last day, on the last trip, they blow their trumpets and they shout really loud. And what happened, church? What happened? That's right. His faith became sight. When he stepped out and took God at his word, God came to another man, a land dweller, and he said, I want you to build a really, really big boat because what I'm going to do, I know you're not going to understand this because you've never even seen rain, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to flood this earth until all the land is covered. And Noah was faced with the decision. Was he going to believe what he saw? Or was he going to look with eyes of faith and take God at his word? And what he did was for 110 years, day in and day out, he stepped out on faith, believing not in what he saw, but in what he heard. From God. And when the boat was completed, as the world was crying, you fool, a raindrop hit his head. And you know the rest of the story. It's the way God has always worked. It's the way God has always worked. God shares the truth. Then the people of God take God at his word and act upon the truth. And when they act in faith, then the power of God is released. Paul is telling you a truth here. He is telling you about who you are in Christ and about what you have in Christ. He is telling you that you don't have to live under the dominion of sin, that God has given you everything that you need. That power has been broken in your life. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You have died to its power. So why does that happen then? Why, do, why does the defeat come? We see what happens is we're living there in the kingdom of light and the enemy is still over here in the kingdom of darkness and he's a lion that still has a roar. And he roars out. And I've heard a lion's roar. I don't know if you have, but it is an awesome thing. A lion's roar can make your knees knock and your heart stop and your bladder, well, you get the picture. So apply the truth to that analogy. What Paul is telling us is that the lion, the enemy who is like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour, Paul is telling us that he has been detoothed and declawed. He still has his roar, but he doesn't have weapons that can defeat us anymore. He can't come over and gum us to death, right? 
What does that do then to you? If you really understand that that power has been broken, what happens when he roars? It really just kind of takes some of the sting off the roar, doesn't it? But Paul not only says that, not only has the enemy been declawed and detoothed, here's what happens. You've been armed. The power, the king of grace has come to sit on the throne. And with him, he has brought the omnipotent power of God. So Paul is saying this. What happens is that you've been handed, listen, you've been handed a 600 Nitro Express side-by-side lion slayer. You know what that is? You know what that lion slayer is? The caliber of that weapon I can tell you from Scripture what it is. Here it is. It's the very power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's your weapon. That's your power. Paul said that is the very same power that works so powerfully in me and can work in you. It is the power of the resurrection that pulled the trigger on the fatal shot to the enemy 2,000 years ago. It's that very same gun, that very same power. So now, folks, understanding that reality, when the lion roars, instead of shaking and quaking, you can say, let's go hunting. Let's go hunting. Because he's been defeated. Because I am secure in the justification, the unbelievable grace of God over my life. And I don't need to fear him. I don't need to run from him. I've got the victory in the conqueror of Satan. And that's my Lord. So we're going to hit this time and again. Paul wants you to know who you are and what you have who you are and what you have in justification so that you can live the victory that's possible. Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Father, Probably said too much already. I'm going to drag this out, but I'm just asking you to take that truth. Credible truth about what happened to us in the moment of justification, about the radical victory that was won for us, about the shattering of the enemy's power and dominion. Let that truth Stir us up to walk in the victory that is possible in Christ. Amen.